But evolutionary psychology is really the idea that not just our physical bodies are genetically evolving and adapting and changing over time, but the psychological capacities that emerge out of who we are as embodied persons embedded in different, we use the word niches, in times and place end up changing over time. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now... On to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Reverend Dr. Pamela Epstein-King and Dr. Justin Barrett. Pam is the executive director of the Thrive Center and professor of applied developmental science in the School of Psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary. Justin is the founder and president of Blueprint 1543, and adjunct professor of psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary. They've co-authored a book, Thriving with the Stone Age Minds. Thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having us. Thrilled to be here. So let's get to know your individual work a little better. Uh, Pam, tell us about the Thrive Center at Fuller. Great, Andy. Thanks for asking. The Thrive Center at Fuller uh, originally started as a research center within the School of Psychology, and the formal title is the Thrive Center for Human Development, of which uh, Justin was the original executive director of it. Um, and lately, with some changes going on in the church broadly and also within Fuller Seminary, we discerned to move it from being exclusively within the School of Psychology uh, to being a more outward-facing impact research center um, that is now located in leader, Fuller's leadership division. And in that context of that, we do a lot of applied research, both understanding what it means to be most fully alive in Christ, drawing on both psychological science, but also being informed by Christian theology and developing resources to enable all persons to thrive um, and become who God created them to be um, for experiencing that fullness of life that is not just about personal well-being and satisfaction, but also about social change and bringing about God's kingdom in the world. Wow. Uh, Justin, um, what is Blueprint 1543? Uh, uh, Blueprint is a, a, a new little startup, uh, a little nonprofit that is aimed at encouraging the integration of Christian faith and the sciences to address big questions in the world, uh, you know, that really matter to humanity. We do that through uh, consulting, convening, um, uh, coaching and other kinds of services and project development. 
So is the 1543 happen to be connected to a significant year for Nicholas Copernicus? Uh, indeed. Okay. Uh, 1543 yes. is often uh, benchmarked as kind of, uh, you know, an informal start to the scientific revolution because of Copernicus's book and also uh, Vassilius's uh, anatomical uh, book that was published that same year. And uh, yeah, so that's our nerdy nod to uh, the sciences, the scientific revolution. Okay, so full disclosure, I did not research that. I did not look it up on your website. I just happened as a historian to know that date and was hoping that was a connection. If not, I was ready to uh, totally eat crow and look like an idiot on here, so. Now, I would have been the one that was embarrassed, right? I'm like, oh, shoot. Yeah, that's a really nice tie and I should have thought. Yeah. So for my, uh, you know, personal gratification, uh, do I get like a, a gold star or an A plus from two professors that I got that answer correct? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Your well. gold stars in the mail. <laughs> so, it's uh, course. <laughs> so obviously y'all did some work at, at Fuller, but, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about how you came together to work together. Uh, sure. Uh, Pam already alluded to the fact that uh, I used to be part of the Thrive Center. And so uh, now it's, what is it, Pam, about six years ago or something like that? I think so. Uh, uh, we uh, concocted this project thanks to uh, funding from the Biologos Foundation, uh, a, a program uh, funding projects on evolution and Christian faith. We thought, hey, uh, let's take the Thrive Center's interest in human thriving and see if we can get new traction on that by considering uh, perspectives from evolutionary psychology. And so with some of our colleagues at Fuller, uh, we, uh, had, we started you know, scratching our heads, doing some research and putting some ideas together uh, that eventually produced this book. Well, let's talk about the book. Uh, so the book is Thriving with Stone Age Minds. Uh, this book examines evolutionary psychology, Christian faith, and the quest for human flourishing. You wrote, the idea of using evolutionary psychology as a tool for theological inquiry may strike you as peculiar or even outrageous. Much of the heat around evolutionary psychology has risen not because of the science itself, but because of extra baggage that some scholars have packed in with it. Baggage I'm happy to leave behind. Uh, Justin, walk us through the inspiration for this book. Yeah, so for a, a long time now, uh, I've my own work in um, the cognitive science of religion and other sort of uh, areas in the study of religion in particular has made me sort of move close to um, evolutionary sciences of one sort or another, mostly evolutionary psychology. And, uh, you know, I could tell from my own personal interactions with evolutionary psychology that that as a person of faith, it was kind of uncomfortable at times. These, this was not an area that I was sort of eagerly embraced for, for lots of different reasons. Um, and uh, so when I finally got to the point of making peace with it, not necessarily agreeing with everything that flies under that banner, but at least recognizing evolutionary psychology as a useful tool that we could adopt cautiously, um, prudently, and so forth, I thought, well, gee, it would be great if uh, the version of me from 20 years ago had had a, a, a helpful introduction to the area. And, you know, not a critical kind of introduction, but uh, a constructive inter introduction that sort of let me see what, what's this thing about evolutionary psychology and, and how might it be useful. So I tried to persuade some other people to write this thing and everyone said, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and of course they do the kind of, well, why don't you do it? And, um, and it really wasn't until this uh, collaboration with Pam that I felt confident enough to go ahead and give it a shot um, and, and desperate enough, maybe. <laughs> so Pam, what about you? Um, where did the inspiration for this book come from? Uh, that is a great question. Uh, it is it, it is for both of us a little bit of an unusual project. I was less interested in evolutionary psychology, but somewhat obsessed with this notion of human thriving and a motivational force for my vocation um, since my mid-20s has really been trying to understand how people become more fully who God created them to be and really wondering about that verse in John 10 10 about what does it mean to experience abundant life or have the fullness of life in Christ. And this idea of thriving became a 
hybrid word that could both inform uh, theologically what it might mean to have the fullness of life in Christ, but also psychologically. I figured we must know more. And so when Evan, uh, when Justin brought up the idea of thinking about evolutionary psychology and so much about evolution is what are we evolving into? Where is the species going? Um, I thought, wow, there could be some really interesting resources to think about how we are evolving, at least from a descriptive scientific perspective and what we should be evolving into. So that became my interest to gain insight from a psychological perspective into the means of evolving. And then also, um, I was really working with a framework around telos that gave me a theological framework or means or lens to evaluate what types of de uh, development or perhaps evolution might be seen as biblical or constructive from a theological perspective. So that's where my interest came in. And Justin's was just a lot of fun to work with. <laughs> so flourishing uh, is becoming one of those uh, buzzwords along with thriving. Um, I'm specifically doing doctoral research right now on the connection between human relationships within an organization and thriving. Mm. So can, can you define for us what you mean by flourishing? Pam, we'll start with you. Okay, sure. So I actually am one of those who will prefer the word thriving, um, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> but I think about thriving as growing um, through the ups and downs, adapting towards one's purpose. And I can unpack that sense of purpose and the notion of telos. But with um, thriving is an inherent idea of growth towards an intended direction, um, towards what something we don't realize on this side of the eschaton, but towards that place where we experience uh, perfect unity with God in Christ as our unique selves. Um, then flourishing, on the other hand, when I see theologians use it, like I've been interacting, um, I'm speaking with Miroslav Wolf next week, his use of flourishing really has to do not just with the fullness of an individual's creation or fulfillment of that, but also the fulfillment of creation in general. So in theological flourishing, there is, I would say, an accountability of how individuals contribute <clears throat> to the ongoing uh, creation process and for the fullness of all of creation. And so in thriving, there is a responsibility to other and to the created order. Thriving, my thriving results in others thriving. Whereas then in psychology, the word flourishing actually really focuses on individual life satisfaction and individual well-being. So there might be uh, hedonic and eudemaic aspects of that, but there's really no accountability uh, to contributing to the common good or bettering creation. So those terms are used differently depending on what discipline you're in. Justin, uh, how would you define thriving and flourishing? I don't want to disagree with my collaborator here. Think, uh, <laughs> oh, let's uh, see a fight for sure. Bring it on. <laughs> well, no, I, I have been persuaded that uh, uh, Pam's notion of thriving is really helpful. And it does capture a notion of flourishing that is common, as, as far as I can tell, in uh, Western theological kind of traditions that include both a life well, they include three, at least three things. One is a life that sort of feels good, uh, that kind of uh, hedonic. Uh, right, uh, so that is uh, virtuously. Alone with our uh, environment, our surrounding, our community, our world. Um, I like that Pam's definition of thriving captures that idea of thriving individuals are part of thriving communities and thriving communities uh, foster thriving individuals, that there's a uh, reciprocal kind of relationship there in thriving. So I know for you all, it seems silly, and ultimately we want to get people to, to purchase the book and to dive deep into it. Um, but there are a few more terms that I think would be helpful to clarify for our listeners so they can connect with what you're going to talk about as we unpack the book. Um, Pam, what, what do you mean by evolutionary psychology? 
Justin's the one who should answer that, but I will take a stab because I'll simplify it because that's not as much my area of expertise. But evolutionary psychology is really the idea that not just our physical bodies are genetically evolving and adapting and changing over time, but the psychological capacities that emerge out of who we are as embodied persons embedded in different, we use the word niches in times and place end up changing over time. Um, so for instance, you know, Gen Z is much more fluent with technological capacities than even my generation of Gen X. Um, and with that is the idea that are there, one of our big questions is, are there enduring psychological capacities that are fundamental to our human nature that endure over time and that propel or continue this evolutionary psycho uh, psychological project towards thriving for humans? So that was a big quest of our research um, and a big question within our project. We used a term there, which I was going to get uh, Justin to define is, you know, and you'll talk about the book. What do you mean by nature niche? Yeah. Um, so uh, we do the controversial thing and say um, it's useful to talk about a human nature. Um, it, it, the scientists often don't like that kind of talk because from an evolutionary perspective, species just sort of blend into each other right um, so there aren't hard boundaries and so they you might wonder you know what's what's this nature talk and uh, many psychologists even those not taking an evolutionary approach understand that we're so socially conditioned and culturally conditioned in how we express ourselves that you might start wondering whether it's even useful to talk about nature we go ahead and do it because we think that it's uh, theologically helpful but also scientifically defensible to talk about what are the characteristic traits of humans that seem to arise in most people uh, just by virtue of being human, um, living in the kind of a human environments that uh, characterize our species. So you might think of that, it's a, a, you know, a thumbnail sketch of what our nature is. What about this niche concept? Well, a, a, a niche um, in evolutionary terms um, is how we functionally interact with the environment around us in order to sort of survive, thrive, uh, to promote fitness. So that, that, that's a, a cumbersome thing that even in the book, I'm afraid there are moments where um, we weren't maybe quite as precise as I hoped. Um, there's a difference there between a niche and a habitat. So our habitat, um, you sometimes hear ecologists say things like a habitat is where you live and your niche is your occupation. <laughs> you know, your, your habitat's your address and your niche is what you do. Um, but what you do is in, in interaction with that particular environment. And so sometimes it's a good shorthand to just talk about our niche as the features of our environment in relation to the organism. Um, and what it has to do to sort of navigate that uh, habitat or environment. So then the, an important theme in our book is, well, we've got this nature that sort of we, de we develop with that then has to confront these uh, rapidly changing niche, uh, changing because one of the things human do, humans do is change our environment around us and thereby change the demands on uh you know, uh, that, that that environment makes on our uh, fitness, our sort of doing the basics of just living and getting along. Um, so we've got this gap between, you know, the nature of our minds, for instance, and um, the qualities of the environment around us. And that's something we all have to navigate. Human nature is, is such a fascinating field of study. And I, I think if, if I were to do it all over again, I'd probably do more studying around psychology and anthropology um, to help me better lead uh, in the, you know, church organizations that I've been a part of. But human nature is so complex and, and so diverse. Justin, how do you even begin to know, you know, where to begin when it comes to examining thriving and evolutionary psychology? I don't know, pick something and go with it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, yeah, we, we're really... Uh, you know, we're inspired by uh, people who have thought long and hard about this, you know, from philosophy and theology, who have identified what well, seems like these are some of the markers of what it means to 
you know, live the good life, that full abundant life that Pam was referring to. Um, you know, like positive uh, uh, emotions, you know, as indicators that things are going well, like, um, you know, how to behave morally or virtuously and how those, you know, character strengths are cultivated. But to situate those then in this sort of broader framework where we can see, okay, how do these weave together to, um, or how might these have been woven together in our past to create this kind of species that we are? Um, methodologically, this area of uh, scientific inquiry draws a lot on developmental psychology, cross-cultural studies, um, uh, comparison with other species, uh, even you might think of, well, occasionally genetic studies, archaeological studies. It's a really an interdisciplinary kind of space because what we're trying to do is discern what seem to be the characteristic ways in which humans just go about doing things that we see over and over again across cultures and throughout time. And how do we understand their relationship to each other? For that reason, you end up seeing in the... Uh, you know, the first sections of the book is a lot of talk about just, you know, what are the physical traits of being human? You know, sort of what are the, uh, those features like opposable thumbs and big brains and upright posture that seem to set us apart from at least many other animals? And then how do those connect to these unusual psychological properties we have? Our use of language, our uh, development of tools, our ability to pass on culture to each other. Um, so we start with some of that basic, you know, human biology and, you know, concepts from human evolution before moving into the, okay, what are these sort of interesting tr psychological traits that set humans apart from other sorts of animals? It's abundantly clear from um, a historical psychological perspective that human species have adapted uh, and changed, um, you know, to, to tremendous changes happen around them to extreme context, but there's there's not been a time in human history um, like the time we find ourselves in now, which changes happen so rapidly. You know, the pace of societal development is almost science fiction as we see new technology and manufacturing, environmental and medical advancements occur so swiftly. Um, are our minds and souls and bodies built for this kind of change? Um, and, and can we thrive at a pacing level with what happening in the world around us. Pam? That is really a great question. And I, I will say that I think time will ultimately tell and if we can thrive in these conditions. But I do think uh, we are equipped um, to have lives that are more oriented towards thriving than surviving in these radical times of chronic disruption. And I actually think our book really addresses some of these issues. Um, I think humans understanding that we need to develop capacities that will help us deal with change um, is really fundamental and that these capacities need to grow. And I say that because often we seem to like, what are the traits, what are the qualities, uh, what are these static skills that I might have or what type of person am I and what does that allow me to do? Or I think an orientation um, of thinking about how am I a person who can constantly and chronically navigate change um, and maintain true to myself um, and also stay directed to my sense of calling or purpose are really essential. And so we identify these three features uh, that are unique um, in their magnitude to the human species in the book. And I think they're actually really, really helpful. Um, in fact, in my own journey, <laughs> keeping a family online, uh, literally and, and above, above water um, in the last two years with pandemic, <clears throat> I've also relayed on them, relayed on these three features, but we talk about the uniqueness of humans to be able to learn. So I think if people can lean into this capacity to learn and embrace that and know, especially in change, there is going to have to be constant learning and constant updating and that we can't ever completely rely on what we know in the past. Um, we need to, the second thing we talk about um, is the human capacity to regulate. Um, that we can pace ourselves, so maybe we can't learn too much. Um, we can set goals. That's another form of regulation that we can do, um, which I know for me in the context of altered life of 
quarantine living really had to readjust my goals. No, I couldn't work on a book in the context of living in a home with, with three kids. Um, so I started blogging. Um, we have to learn to regulate our emotions. And that I think became very apparent to us uh, during, regulation, uh, during quarantine, whether it was anxiety or fear or frustration, cultivating patience, but these different forms of regulating are really essential for um, understanding times of change. And, um, and lastly, we talk about pro-sociality and the importance of relationships. And again, in times of change, how do you stay deeply connected uh, to those most life-giving relationships to you. Um, I, I joked throughout social isolation or quarantine um, about taking the Marie Kondo idea of simplicity, which she usually uh, applies to your closet or your home. And I thought uh, we were forced to do that with our social lives. We kind of had to simplify because we couldn't see many people. Um, and you can only do so many Zooms with people a day, but it gave me perspective of, you know, we have relational capacity, which is something that uh, Justin brought to the book, that we can be intimate with a certain amount of people. Um, but we also know with thriving that if all the relationships focus on you, that's not really thriving. You always need to be in relationships where you are giving, with a sense of generosity um, and benefiting others that aren't necessarily just your in-people group. Um, so I think when people can think about how can I keep learning and appropriate knowledge in the face of chronic change? How can I keep regulated? How can I keep rooted? How can I keep motivated? And, and then how do I keep related to those that are most essential and how do I stay um, engaged with people in a way where I am truly benefiting them in a generous capacity? Um, those are very important um, lessons for living with massive disruption and chaos. But I think it makes us challenge how we did those things previously. We're going to come back to that uh, relational piece here momentarily, but there's a, a fascinating element to all of this, and that is faith. Um, in your research, Justin, how does, how does faith correlate with thriving? Well, one of the kind of surprising, uh, surprising, not surprising <laughs> outcomes of, uh, you know, our, our study in preparation for writing this book, you know, as we talked with other colleagues and, you know, we read across the literature um, is that you can kind of, you can almost capture human uniqueness or at least, you know, these sort of distinctive human bundles of traits, what makes up our nature, um, using some very theological kinds of ideas. So, you know, we are, you know, as Pam summarized, we are, you know, sort of these quintessential sort of social beings. We are remarkable in our ability to learn, um, you know, context-specific information, acquire expertise, and we've got this ability to uh, exercise self-control. Um, but if you, you weave those together the right way, what it reveals is, oh, that's interesting. These are exactly the traits that you need to do a good job loving each other and loving God. Um, and so it shouldn't surprise us too much that we see in a lot of psychological literature already, mostly from psychology of religion, that a, uh, a lived faith uh, and by that, I mean, it not just a sense that, oh, yeah, God exists, but that, you know, then you do something about it. <laughs> um, you're actually an active participant in a faith community does correlate at least with a lot of indicators of well-being that you hope would be there if you're living a thriving life. So, you know, going to church actually, you know, with great regularity and being committed um, is does correspond to a longer uh, life expectancy. It uh, corresponds to lower levels of depression and anxiety. It corresponds to uh, higher levels of uh, physical health. It corresponds to more pro-social activities like uh, giving money and donating blood. So there are all of these little breadcrumbs in the literature, many of which are still fought over, but the, the broad picture seems to be a good life is a life centered on something bigger than us and a community that 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 is too um and uh from a christian perspective of course we think you know well that's god and so loving god and loving each other better yeah really is at the root of thriving 
We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Louisville's Kentucky's annual Festival of Faith will be held November 18th to the 20th. BSK will play a key role in the conference as a sponsor, and Dr. Lewis Brogdon, Executive Director of BSK's Institute for Black Church Studies, will lead a session entitled Black Faith's Encounter with Black Trauma, Pain, and Nihilism on Friday, November the 19th at 10 a.m. Join us for this event via live stream by visiting festivaloffaiths.org. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Pam, how does your theology... um influence your your research and your work? That is a great question. I, um, yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I think it's changing. Um, but I think my, my career has been one that has somewhat volleyed back and forth, had seasons that were more diving deep into theology. Um, that's where I started. I was a psych undergrad, um, ended up doing a master's of divinity, that raised a lot of questions for me about this idea of thriving. Uh, that was the word I was using and how, um, how do we enable people to come into this fullness of life? And so I started taking electives in the School of Psychology. So at that season, I had questions that arose from my theology that I did not find resources um, within my theology to answer. So started looking in psychology. Um, and something that became very evident to me is that at least the Christian tradition that I was embedded in was very adept at asking uh, and celebrating and explaining what Jesus saved us from in terms of damnation, sin, death. But there was a less developed theology or practical theology about what Jesus saved us for, um, which I would describe as a life of thriving and purpose so that we might glorify God and live in intimate relationship with God. And so that's what I started to pursue in the context of my um, psychological research, which then I was answering, uh, questions were being raised around issues of ultimacy of like, where, where does this go? Psychology does not address what this idea of development is. They, they have some really great tools, as Justin was just talking about, about how we can get there and develop better or more effectively or know God more, but, but I didn't really get to what ends. So actually this project uh, was a really wonderful kind of homecoming for me to be re-engaged with theology, um, to think about what are theological models of flourishing, uh, to think more deeply about how I understood theological anthropology uh, to inform um, my understanding of thriving. So that has gone, um, back, been a volley between the two. Something that I'm doing now more, this is the different thing, is that I, I, I think that even, I think in the social sciences, we might see a movement of making our philosophical, or in my case, more theological roots and assumptions more explicit within our science, which it seems like psychologists always rely heavily on psychological theory and don't raise a lot of philosophical issues. But I think with the increase of um, interdisciplinary studies, and I think also the appreciation of understanding different types of peoples, um, the DEI movement um, has really elevated um, and appreciating different orientations to the world that it will be really necessary and helpful for social scientists to make some of their philosophical assumptions more explicit, which is really what we do in this book. You wrote, scholars who research human thriving commonly regard loving and caring others and contributing to the general social good as key features of a thriving life. 
natural capacity for caring for others, however, appear to be impended by contemporary social niches. Uh, Pam, you were alluding to this earlier. Can you unpack this a little bit more? Sure. Um, so yes, so it is common, um, commonly regarded within psychology and, and most even theological understandings of flourishing that relationality is absolutely central, whether you're talking about a Christological or Trinitarian um, understanding of the image of God. Um, we understand that God created us to be in relationship with God and his God's creation. Um, and so, and we see science all over from interpersonal neurobiology, attachment science, um, all sorts of areas that really point to the fact that we need um, individuals for um, well being, for thriving and flourishing. Um, so that is just part of the human makeup. Then the last part of the line, you said it was constricted. Could you just repeat that last line, last part of the sentence? Yeah, um, you, you wrote in the book, uh, natural capacity for caring for others, however, appeared to be um, impeded by contemporary social niches. Yes, so I think these relationships get impeded in many, many ways, whether it is somewhat of the flood of relationality that we're exposed to through you know, our technological social niches, uh, where we end up you know, with friends with you know, thousands of people, but the relationships are less meaningful. Um, we are, you know, issues of justice um, and racism sure impact people's capacity and opportunities for relationships. Um, some congregations might really emphasize a theology that gets acted out in terms of conformity, where people are not allowed true authentic expressions and opportunities to differentiate who they are and serve God and love God and know God and love that community as their unique selves, but are pressured more into kind of a cookie cutter Christianity. Um, so there's many ways that our niches or our surroundings can impede that relationality. Um, I come back to just simply wanting to promote relationships where people are known and loved, where they feel really seen, uh, where there's a sense of intimacy um, that is appropriate over time, and not just intimacy, but also accountability. Um, I think our world today is not in love with the concept of accountability, but I think true reciprocating relationships, which is something that I write more about in other contexts, are ones that are marked both by intimacy and accountability. So as the mom of three teens, I have kids on social media who might feel intimate with people online, but there's no accountability to what's going on on Instagram from my perspective, at least. Part of the challenge of caring for others is that most of us don't actually um, know our neighbor. The yeah. urbanization of America in which many people have left rural communities has created yeah. populous areas, but uh, with less familiarity of those that we pass every single day. Justin, how does socialization, familiarization, urbanization fit into this conversation on thriving? One of the, one of the things you'll notice uh, throughout the book is there's a little tension here. Um, we are optimistic about the tools that we have for thriving that are part of our nature but also simultaneously sort of realistic about how these different um, environmental constraints, especially in a rapidly changing world, present new challenges that have to be handled uh, sort of with, with wisdom. And one of those is uh, increasing urbanization and uh, digital media. So if you think from, an, you know, uh, from our sort of Stone Age mind perspective, what, what our minds are kind of good for, <laughs> you know, by nature, is they seem to be happiest with um, a relatively small number of personal relationships. Now that small number is about 150 plus or minus about 50. So that seems like a lot, but it's not a lot if you sort of consider our contemporary urban world, right? Where we're uh, passing people on the street uh, constantly well, when, when we're out on the street. Uh, you know, even in our neighborhoods that vastly exceeds this 150 people. Um, and as a result, we seem to have to resort to, well, ignoring people, dehumanizing them, 
uh, clumping them into groups so we can keep track of them and uh, predict their behaviors. We cannot engage them as individuals anymore because of the kinds of worlds we live in. Well, that seems like um, an interesting challenge then if we're supposed to love our neighbors uh, when we don't even know our neighbors. Um, and in some ways we can't because of the kind of cultural environments that we're in. And you could play out the same kind of concerns with social media, right? We have, uh, well, some people have thousands of friends on social media, but you can't actually maintain and cultivate relationships with thousands of people. The relevant science suggests that our deep, intimate, trusting relationships are not just a matter of exchanging information with each other, but of spending time together doing what um, is sometimes called social grooming. So, you know, we see in other great apes that they, they pick nits off of each other and and that's, that's, that's great for getting a snack and keeping each other clean. But it's, what it's also great for is um, triggering the release of uh, endorphins and oxytocin to make us feel good around each other, to like each other, to feel bonded with each other. Uh, humans have, you know, we use touch as well, but we use a number of other techniques for being bonded with each other, including laughing together and engaging in synchronized movement with each other, marching or dancing. Um, singing seems to do a lot of this work. Well, all of those things are, are, are hard to do well uh, via digital media. They're just, it's, it's not the sort of natural environment for triggering our bonding kinds of mechanisms. And so, uh, you know, as Pam alluded to, then we can end up with uh, very broad, but very thin social networks that are not characterized by high degrees of trust, intimacy, and, you know, uh, and, and that's a challenge that we're all facing now in this kind of world that we're living in. So what I hear you saying is instead of doing flea treatment um, on our dogs, or maybe even um, <laughs> lice treatment on our children, the better thing to do is to sit behind them and to, to pick it out and to eat it. And that would bring a closer connection yes. to each other. You know, I, I think it's worth trying out. It's, it's a good working hypothesis. <clears throat> okay. Let, let me know how that goes. All or, right. So, yeah. Or I guess more seriously, you know, people need hugs. <laughs> it's, it's <a> to, <laughs> we all need hugs and it's hard to get hugs over digital media. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, human mental development. You talked about in the book, the importance of early childhood education and mentorship. You wrote part of helping young people develop into thriving adults, then maybe a re-examination and reorganization of educational systems, they reduce the natural or nature niche gap relevant to how people learn. Pam, talk to us about the importance of early psychological development. Yes, thanks. That's a great question. Um, so early psychological development, one thing we love as developmental psychologists is how malleable and plastic our brain is. And in fact, a lot of the book hinges on, hinges on that reality. Because of the changing capacities of the human brain, humans can change their environment or how they interact with their environment uh, because their brain is adaptive rather than have to genetically adapt over time. So having not just sufficient, but loving and caring in great conditions early in life really sets the stage for brain development. And what it becomes so key there is love and relationality for a newborn to feel safe and secure um, and to feel loved and to feel known. Um, you don't necessarily have to tell a newborn how they feel, but you can pat them and mirror back to them uh, how they wiggle or squeal or laugh to enable them to internalize uh, in a less uh, conscious way that they're known and loved. Um, and that they're seen. But throughout life, humans need to have experiences of love and experiences of feeling safe. Um, I would say some of the most exciting research right now um, in the field of education is something that's described as socio-affective neuroscience, which is demonstrating that kids need to feel safe and known and cared for in the context of the classroom in order to optimize their cognitive development. 
their brains function better, they grow more rapidly, they can experience episodes of more abstract reasoning in the context of a caring adult relationship. Um, so there's a woman, uh, Dr. Mary Helen Mordino Yang, um, who um, is doing some extraordinary neuroscience um, at the University of Southern California um, on that note. But it's to me, that's absolutely fascinating and graves, gives great insight in how we can practically help people thrive, especially young persons. Justin, what does the evolutionary psychological development look like as we become adults? Oh, actually, that's, that's sort of, that's more Pam's sweet spot in some respects. I mean, <laughs> she's really good with uh, adolescents and uh, emerging adults. So maybe I'll, I should punt to her on that one. Yeah, we're going to take that question from you and we're going to give it back to the expert. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so brain development, uh, more recently in like the last 10 years or so, we've discovered that the brain goes through an accelerated period of growth during adolescence. So this explains why we sometimes see very inconsistent and erratic behavior from adolescents, because brain growth is actually best described as connections in the brain becoming more consistent rather than like new pieces of the brain building out. But if you can imagine a young person um, and we can think like 13 to like 25 is generally when we see these synapses become more uh, consistent that sometimes parts of the brain are connecting and sometimes they're not. So this is very helpful for me as a mom of three teens to go, okay, those synapses may not quite be there today because yesterday you made such a wise decision and, and this decision didn't quite seem like you had your full cognitive capacities to, to make that decision or guide that behavior. Um, so we see that kids are increasing in their capacity um, to be more consistent, and they're also increasing in their capacity to reflect on abstract ideas. And now from the perspective of spiritual development and faith development, this is essential because kids can experience God's love through God directly, through one another younger, but as they get older, they have more of an ability to reflect upon what they believe, um, the implications those beliefs have for their identity or the implications those beliefs have for their behaviors. Um, again, uh, Dr. Mordino Yang and another one of her recent graduates, Dr. Um, Rod Riveras, have showed that in the context of caring relationships, when conversations are scaffolded for kids to reflect on beliefs that have greater implication for their lives and the world around them, those are the beliefs that become meaningful and get internalized into their identity. Um, and, and this is, I just think, precious for us um, within the context of spiritual formation. They, um, that we expose kids to the Ten Commandments, so many beliefs, but we know a lot of them fall on deaf ears or don't go anywhere. But when kids are given the opportunity to think about how that impacts my life, my family, uh, those kids in India that I saw online, um, that's when they start to become incorporated into our, their identity. They become values and that's when they actually motivate behaviors. So I'm very excited to see some of the science behind this, this, this meaning making um, that I deeply integrate into spiritual formation. I wanna so, pick up on um, something that Pam just said there about identity. Um, you know, just a, a little footnote is that there's there's lots of psychological science demonstrating that, um, you know, our the selves that we develop are not just a function of the kinds of uh, beliefs and thought patterns that we have, but uh, sometimes it goes the other way around that we act ourselves into belief, we act ourselves into commitment. Um, so, you know, I think we commonly uh, think, okay, if I, if I think a certain thing, then I'm t I will tend to act in accordance to that. But sometimes it goes just the other way around. And I bring this up because I think in, especially in church contexts, we've got a bit of an intellectualist kind of tradition in a lot of our churches, right? We spend a whole lot of time trying to get people's heads right. We teach them 
uh, sort of directly in a lecture format here. This is what you should be thinking. Now go and do something about it instead of here's what you should be doing. And then your thoughts will sort of uh, come alongside that. Um, if you follow me. So sometimes I think we, we get the, the horse in the cart just the, just the wrong way around. Yeah, I follow you because actually the, my next question was to you about, about that. You know, our, our fast-paced and growing world is, is full of information. You know, just, just Google quirky cat videos and you'll find millions of hits in a second. You know, but at the same time, the abundance of information overload has created more and more opportunities for people to just simply reinforce their existing worldviews and beliefs. More information um, doesn't make it truthful information. So, so Justin, what is it about the human psyche that gravitates towards reinforcing uh, rather than challenging one's existing worldview? Right. We call this confirmation bias is sort of the jargon in the field that we uh, selectively attend to information that confirms what we already think. And this can be one of a number of what are called self-serving biases. Um, we also selectively attend to things that, you know, make us feel good about ourselves that affirm who we are. And so uh, the intersection of those two things can uh, lead us to interesting, uh, <laughs> maybe crazy ideas that we've uh, managed to persuade ourselves of. And then add to that, we tend to surround ourselves with people who we think think like us. Um, and we overestimate the degree of consensus in uh, around beliefs, you know, and values uh, that other people share. Um, all of these lead to this kind of polarization that we see. Uh, and it's tough. Uh, you might think, um, well, that's just all bad. And, you know, you might even say that's the fallenness of humanity. And maybe a big part of it is. But appreciate that, you know, in many contexts, it's actually useful. Um, this is a useful way of figuring things out. It's a use, you know, this sort of social conf um, socially conforming is really handy way of, of navigating lots of challenges. But as you say, in the kind of world we live in now, that sort of information flooded, we really need to do a better job of discerning, well, what's, what's the good information and what isn't? Um, and so I think it's helpful to identify, you know, via the relevant psychological sciences here, well, what are the, what are the, you might say the conceptual pathways of least resistance that maybe lead us to bad thinking in certain situations. And so how can we de develop or cultivate intellectual habits or intellectual virtues that help us fight against those? So I know even for me personally, when I find myself very much attracted to a particular idea, um, I try to, you know, listen to the little bell that's going off somewhere in my head that says, oh, 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 you're liking this an awful lot. You better start looking for counter evidence uh, <laughs> or find someone who, who disagrees with you on this and hear them out uh, because it's really easy just to, you know, encourage ourselves along those easy pathways. Uh, um, but that's hard, right? It takes discipline. Uh, it's a lot easier just to be affirmed in what we think and surround ourselves with people who think just like we do. There's so many questions I want to get to, and uh, I might be following up with you for my doctoral research side of things. But for the podcast purposes, I know we got to zero it in, and ultimately we're going to push people to hopefully buy the book. But Pam, how, how do you see this book being used by professional clergy? Oh, great question. Um, I think there's a couple uh applications that are a little different uh, right now in some parts of the church issues around faith and science um, are of interest where there are places uh, across christianity where there's been some skepticism um, about the role of science in our lives as christians and i think this book is a really constructive example of how we can understand science we can understand evolutionary psychology as, as part of God's creation is something that God has given us to give us more insight in how to live a life that is holy and worthy and pleasing of God. So I think it's a great example of, of how religion and science can really speak to each other and have a constructive conversation and, and really inform more how, how we can be uh, follow Jesus more closely. And then at a practical level, I really think that identifying um, some of these realities of that we are individuals, we are creatures, we live in environments, 
sometimes there's not always such a great fit. Um, and how can we understand these human, we call them features of learning and regulating our self-control and planning um, and relating to people? How can we learn, relate, and regulate in ways that help us have a better fit with our environment? Um, and then evolution is, is based on the idea of change over time. So I think that concept is so relevant for our era, as you mentioned earlier, that is just rapidly changing. So how, how can we have, how can clergy help their people have an adaptive posture? How can they be rooted in the gospel, rooted in their faith, but understand that there are things that are changing and that they can still be faithful to the gospel, um, but they can continue to relate and learn um, and, and understand how the gospel provides meaning for them and directing them in, in, this, in this changing time. The last thing I would say is the work that we do um, on telos and this idea of purpose um, that people have can pursue purpose, that we were all created for a purpose. And I think broadly as Christians, we understand part of our purpose is to glorify God. And, and, and I would add is the Heidelberg Catechism and enjoy God forever. Um, so how do we pursue a life that allows us each to glorify God in the manner that God created us to be as unique persons? Um, I know I've spent a lot of time of my professional career trying to glorify God and be like other people and be more like Justin. I am just a different person than Justin. And, and I believe that we all glorify God more when we live into who we are authentically. Um, but we have to do that in reciprocating relationships with others and God. So I think this notion of purpose and telos that we suggest is a helpful way for people to have a framework to think about the purpose of their life for God. Justin, what's your hope for the book? Well, my hope is that we've provided a lot of um, uh, both sort of uh, broad programmatic kind of ways of thinking about the relationship between a particular science and, um, you know, uh, the, the, the Christian faith, but also given lots of just little nuggets that are sort of provocative and worth pursuing. Uh, throughout the book, we've We've scattered uh, little practical thoughts that at least are inspired by the science, like uh, maybe we ask of our pastors that they form too many personal relationships uh, for the kind of relational capacity that we have. Maybe uh, our schools um, emphasize age segregation a little bit more than they ought to. Um, maybe our decision-making in churches um, is, could be better informed by some of the relevant uh, psychological science. Um, we've scattered some of these really practical little nuggets throughout, I think, that, that, that should get uh, folks in the church thinking. But then more broadly, there's, there is a kind of a, you might think of it, a, a cultural prophetic kind of voice to this as well. And it's a caution that we shouldn't be sort of overly enthusiastic about every single new technology and change that comes down without first thinking very carefully about how do these, how are the ways in which we're changing our environment? And we don't just mean, you know, the, the natural world in the way that we often hear in sort of ecology, but, you know, our technological world, our environments, our sort of lived day-to-day -day environments. Let's think carefully about how we're changing those by introducing technologies into our homes, into our classrooms, into the church, um, how we're changing the, the way we live on a day-to-day -day basis that might be at odds with what it means to live into um, the, the kind of full and flourishing life that, that, that Jesus just wants for us. Pam, what about you? What's your hope for the book? I, uh, I thought what Justin said was so good. <laughs> Um, yeah, I hope that the book allows people an experience of recognizing how psychological sciences can be really constructive and helpful for thinking about or understanding how to follow Jesus uh, more fully and how to offer their lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Um, 
to think about those practical issues that Justin just highlighted, but also to think on these grander levels of, of what is my purpose and how, how do I conceive my purpose as being a, a unique person in relationship with others? What kind of relationships, what characterizes those relationships and how am I glorifying God in that? And, and, and what are some tools I can do to do that? How do I learn? How do I plan? How do I think about my emotional life and how do I relate to do that? Um, and uh, really hope that um, in this day and age where there's so much decline in churches, that books like this will bring some fresh air and enable believers to be activated um, in their own lives for God. Um, that would bring some more vitality to the church. The book is Thriving with Stone Age Minds. Our guests are Reverend Dr. Pamela Epstein-King and Dr. Justin Barrett. Thank you for making the time to have this conversation, and thank you for challenging us to better know our nature through a theological lens. Thanks, Andy. It was great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Enjoyed it very much. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.